You're listening to The Main Course, where food is serious business. Listen along for insights, strategies, forecasts, and thought leadership from the front lines of food with your host, Barbara Castiglia. Welcome to The Main Course. I'm Barbara Castiglia of Modern Restaurant Management. Today, we're going to talk about the intersection of hospitality and restaurants and travel. And with me today is the EVP and COO of HMS Host, Joe Robert Thornton, who has a tremendous background in in hospitality and is also an author. Um, So welcome. First, give me a little bit about your background in hospitality. I know you have a background before you reached over at HMS Host with Jamba Juice and and Starbucks. Hello, Barbara. It's great to be here with you today. Um, Yes. So actually, even before that, I started my uh, career, uh, you know, working in clothing and fast food restaurants, what most, you know, kids do in high school and college. But Really got the career break working for Blockbuster Video. You remember that one? <laughs> uh, I spent 14 years there. I called them the good years, Barbara, uh, 92 to 2006. You know, a high, high growth air, uh, years with the company. And then, of course, you know, by 2006, there were certainly signs of the demise. And I, I left there uh, when I had an opportunity to go work at Starbucks and spent 11 wonderful years at Starbucks. Uh, in many uh, different capacities, leaving as um, a senior vice president uh, in 2017, but most importantly, leaving as a coffee master. So <laughs> I could tell you uh, from sipping a cup of coffee at what elevation the coffee was grown. Um, so really had a great, amazing journey uh, in coffee, including spending time in countries of origin, you know, where you're actually picking uh, coffee cherry and, and watching the processing of it. So great, great career there. And, um, you know, the question many people ask is, well, why in the world would you ever leave Starbucks? And I left at the request of a former colleague who was CEO at Jamba Juice. He had come off of their board uh, when they made a management change and he called and asked if I would come over as the COO happened to be in Frisco, Texas, where I was already living. They had moved their headquarters there, so it couldn't have been more convenient. And I worked there actually for only a year and seven months. We did a business turnaround, and it was a public company that was really too small. It needed to be private. And we turned around the business to a private uh, company out of Atlanta. And uh, that was really the prompt that I took – 15 months off and and wrote my first book and uh, started a second book. And then the opportunity to HMS host came uh, late in 2019. And then I actually started March 9th of 2020, uh, pretty much the day of the pandemic last year. So uh, that's that's kind of my uh, the headlines on my career. So, you know, a lot of people, you know, uh, are familiar with what HMS host does, because when you're in, in an airport, you know, you you see what they do, but they're not familiar with the company itself. So can you kind of explain um, what it is that you do and what your role is with the company? Yeah, very interesting, Barbara, that, you know, we're not really a brand. And so most people won't know this because we're operating other people's brands. And we've had relationships prior to the pandemic with more than 300 brands. Uh, everything from local brands to our own proprietary brands uh, to the obvious, the, the more national brands that people see, you know, Starbucks, Chick-fil-A, Shake Shack, 
et cetera, that we operate across North America. And we have, uh, over the, the years, um, you know, went to bid these locations that come up in airports. And, uh, we, you know, we certainly are the biggest in this space of, of um, operating restaurants across uh, North America. And inside of that, those deals, um, you know, we uh, have built some great relationships and some are very longstanding. Uh, but that's really what our mission is, is to, to go in and, and uh, build these opportunities in airports and motorways, by the way, but in the airports in particular, and um, and then operate those brands, uh, you know, frankly, better than anyone else. So what's your role? Yeah, and my role as the chief operating officer is, um, you know, it's twofold. There's a field team. So I have vice presidents of operations who run the, the business across the U.S. And, and Canada airports and motorways. Um, but also, you know, here in the headquarters, I am in charge of digital culinary communications supply chain, um, Starbucks is a separate account, and then all of our um, our indirect spend and, and just, you know, efficiency opportunities, all those areas report into me. So as you mentioned, you started at the very beginning of the pandemic. So, you know, what has that experience been like? Yeah, you know, Barbara, coming into HMS Host brand new, is that alone is is interesting because there's so much long tenure in this organization. I mean, I was in Chicago a couple of weeks ago and we did recognition for one of our associates who's worked in a restaurant there for 50 years. And it's not uncommon to see, you know, people working 20, 30, 40 years at the company. Um, so coming in new is a challenge in and of itself. With the pandemic starting, uh, you know, day one, I'd fill out paperwork and went to the first coronavirus meeting and Italy shut down and the NBA shut down that day. So that's all I've really known with HMS Host. And as much as I, you know, wanted to spend time looking back, trying to understand the company, I think after about three or four weeks, I, you know, I, I took the per perspective of it's going to be a different company. So, you know, spend less time looking back, spend more time looking forward. And what I will say, though, is the the people in this organization are incredibly resilient. Uh, and now that I've had a chance to finally get out and visit some of our markets, that's been validated. I mean, we know um, that we went through a difficult time as an organization, but we really don't truly know what our people have gone through. And so I think getting out and hearing their stories has given me a different perspective on yeah, you know, the organization, I'll continue to do that now that we are seeing the business build back. Obviously now, yeah, we are seeing things start to uh, to recover. Um, so what has that been like and what do you uh, what do you foresee happening you know now as more people are um, are starting to travel? Yeah, you know, and Barbara, a little bit, you know, kind of going back to last year, I mean, at our lowest point, we were down ninety seven percent of our sales. Um, and that is uh, far more significant than any impact from 9-11, which was really, I think, the baseline that people were looking at for the airline industry. We quickly found out that this there's no comparison. I mean, this was significantly worse than 9-11 and some of it just because of the length of it. 
Um, but of course, I'm the eternal optimist. Even at 97% down, I said, you know, it could be worse. We could be cruise ships or movie theaters, <laughs> you know, that were 100% down. Um, but we regrouped very, very slow over last summer and fall. There are a couple points where we thought the business was going to tick up and then, you know, either the virus resurfaced or there was warnings about travel. And we just saw it kind of flatline through the holidays. And then, you know, early as probably early January, there was a lot of headlines about spring break would be soft because colleges and universities really didn't have children on campus and it just wouldn't be traditional. And then March came. And we all saw a spike that, frankly, no one was really prepared for. And now we've seen, you know, of course, an obvious another spike this past weekend, Memorial Day weekend. And, you know, we're seeing um, TSA numbers that are in the 70 to 75 percent range back from the not 2020 business, but 2019. Everyone's benchmarking against, you know, an obvious uh, st static year where the numbers make sense. So, you know, I think we're all a little more optimistic than we were three months ago, for sure. Uh, at the same time, uh, this this unexpected growth has created a new problem, which is the staffing challenges that we're all facing uh, to keep up with the pace of the business. So you're experiencing the same challenges that other restaurants and retailers are experiencing where they're just not able to uh, you know, to find the adequate staffing numbers that they need. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's uh, I would say pre-pandemic, if, if people are really transparent, it was it was already more difficult to staff in an airport. Um, you know, the challenges of, of driving and getting through security and all the things that come along with that for a similar retail experience. Uh, you know, you have to create a case for that. And so, you know, that that is something we still have to work through. But I think by and large, though, it's just an overall shortage. You know, I read one article, there's about 8 million people are in this somewhat of a holding pattern. Either they are still getting subsidy from the government and are not working, or they may be working, but only limited hours so that they can continue to get the subsidy. And that's just one piece of it. There's other elements like the gig economy, the increased demand for delivery drivers and all the things that have happened on the street because the pandemic is also taking people away from the traditional brick and mortar restaurant, um, you know, workforce. So what do you do to attract um, talent and, and also retain it? Yeah. You know, part of what we've done in recent uh, weeks is, is we've raised wages in some of our locations uh, for all different positions. We've also uh, implemented a, a sign-on bonus or uh, a referral bonus. We've also put in place uh, retention bonuses. And frankly, Barbara, as you talk to other businesses, you'll find that others are doing the same and all that just really becomes table stakes. Those are the right things to do uh, to entice people back to work. But that's really only, um, I, I think, going to get us so far. I think we have to continue to be creative about you know, just real engagement. What what keeps people inspired to work outside of just the, the monetary aspect, which is always important to do. Are you noticing that guests are have different expectations now? It's a good question, Barbara. Yes and no. You know, we uh, we run a 
airports in general are more predicated on the business traveler than they are the leisure traveler. But of course, that's been inverted the last year. We've had more leisure travelers than business travelers. And, and, and now, of course, going into summer where we're already indexed to leisure travelers, that continues to be the trend. You know, we are all watching uh, diligently to see what happens in September, you know, when the government subsidy ends, where some of the restrictions may change, even the airports. Right now, the, you know, the mask uh, requirements are through September 13th and social distancing. So a lot may change. And if we start to get business travelers back, that may change, you know, what the, the what the traveler overall is looking for. But, you know, to your question, certainly we've implemented things like QR codes, um, you know, touchless transaction opportunities, uh, self-checkout kiosks, things that uh, have made people, I, I believe, feel more secure about interacting with our brand, with the brands that we operate in the airport. Uh, but at the same time, you know, if you visit um, some of the airport locations, there's really not a whole lot of social distancing. They're pretty busy. And so you've got this mixed bag of, of you know, kind of how people want to operate, some reverting back to how they interacted before and, and some still being more careful. But uh, the one thing that is at least consistent is that today in, in U.S. airports and on uh, airlines, you still have to to wear a mask. And so that's at least keeping that uh, safety protocol in place. So you mentioned, you know, leisure travel um, and with, you know, Memorial Day. Um, are you anticipating that there is going to be a pent up demand for travel um, throughout the summer and beyond? I believe so, Barbara. I mean, we've seen some of that already. Uh, again, the spike uh, for spring break and now the spike over uh, Memorial Day weekend looked more, uh, while it's on a lower base, the, the trends, the spike up looked more similar to 2019 and prior. So, you know, I, I think we're all a little more bullish on the summer than we would have been, uh, you know, just a few weeks ago. Um, but again, we'll have to see what happens with business travel because that is kind of the next level of, of really growing back. So how, is, how do you envision your role is going to change now that more people are going to start to travel? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, it's, you know, how do we make sure we're responding to all the operational needs um, of the guest? Um, you know, what are the things we need to put into place that, uh, frankly, either we couldn't invest into the pandemic or we didn't have enough units open where it may, may not have made sense. But speaking of that, you know, probably our biggest challenge at the moment is just getting more restaurants open. We have about 900 open today, but still about 600 that are closed. Um, so there's kind of three steps to it, getting more restaurants open, extending the hours of some of the restaurants who have limited hours. And at some point starting to grow back some of the menu uh, offerings where many of those were reduced uh, to the for the pandemic for all the right reasons. But I think those steps are some of the biggest things for the operations team uh, to take on on the field side. As far as the headquarters, again, I think there's a lot of digital initiatives uh, that we need to work on here, uh, restarting the supply chain, because again, that was a very abrupt stop uh, for everyone. And you know, restarting a supply chain 
uh, across the U.S. is it's big for every everyone that's operating in the restaurant space. So in the midst of your career, you took time to write not one, but now two books. Um, so why did you want to do that? Um, and what did you feel you had to say? Well, it's a good question, Barbara. You know, I um, I carried around the ideas of writing books for years. You know, I would I would attempt to do a little bit as I'm flying around or sitting in hotels. But one of the things I've learned about the writing process, you, you really have to commit the time to it and create the opportunity where it feels like a job, which is difficult to do when you're working full time. But I did get to a point where I knew that I had more than just a blog. I had more than an op-ed. I had something that needed to be cultivated into a book. And as soon as the opportunity came to take the year off, I knew that was the time to do it. And so, uh, you know, it was really reflective during that time. Um, the first weekend I took off, um, I broke my arm <laughs> and had surgery and, you know, it slowed me down for a bit, which was probably the best thing because it it kind of forced me into this role and, and time of, of thinking more about the book. Um, also, four months into the time off, my mother passed away, which took, you know, a lot of energy away from writing the book. But it also put me in a very refle reflective place. And so, you know, after, um, you know, a couple of months, I reengaged around the writing and I felt pretty invigorated then. And so uh, but I went through, frankly, what I think most writers go through, which is, do you really have something to say? And more importantly, will other people want to read it? And so in writing the book. Um, one of my most important in writing both books, one of the most important things was to make it real, uh, realistic for people, uh, not not make it as much about theory, but make it about practice, how we actually live every day. And, you know, include a lot of storytelling, because I think that's also important as people go on their journey is, you know, learning through other people's experiences. So tell me a little bit about your first book and then we'll get into the second one. Yeah, the first book was called The Power of Ore. And uh, the genesis of the title is that I was sitting with a group of consultants. We were doing a store re-engineering project for about 5,000 locations. And after a couple months of, you know, gathering data and interviews and all the things that consultants do, we sat down with the executive team, had this discussion about the work and the consultants, uh, you know, always talked about the power of and, and all these things that we could get accomplished. And I remember walking away from that conversation um, saying, that's not really realistic. That's not how people live every day. And if we attempt to do all of this, we're probably going to fail miserably. And I do think that all the boardrooms I've set around since that time, it's very similar. You build strategic plans, the size of war and peace. And, you know, all of these things sound great, except someone has, has to actually go out and execute it. And so the power of or is kind of debunking this whole theory about the power of and. And I truly believe on the personal side we all are making trade-offs every day. You know, if you have two children with events at the same time, you have to decide as a parent which one you're going to attend. Or if you have enough 
money to pay two bills, but you have three bills, then you've, you're making decisions. You're making trade-offs all the time. And I think we get into the corporate world and we don't make the trade-offs. We try to do everything. And, you know, our history is chocked full of businesses that tried to be everything to everyone who are now out of business and others who have found a lane and have run very hard through that lane and become best in class. And so it's, it's a journey through uh, just being very specific about how you spend your time, what you focus on. You know, my, my favorite chapter is saying no. It's called saying no, chapter five, because so often in our lives, we say yes to things that we probably shouldn't. And when you say maybe, maybe is not a no, maybe it's more of a yes. <laughs> And I think there's times we have to be really definitive, not just in our personal life, but at work to say, I cannot take on this other project. Or if you want me to take this on, what are you willing to take away so that I can be successful at that? It takes a lot of leadership courage, but that's where I think the best in class businesses and leaders succeed. So it's really that journey through my experiences over the, my first 20 years of my career. So what kind of response did you get and you know, kind of led you to want to write another book? You know, the first book, uh, I didn't even do a book tour because of the pandemic, you know, released in February of 2020. However, I did get an incredible response uh, from, uh, you know, colleagues, former colleagues, and frankly, people that uh, I didn't know who just said, you know, this is uh, refreshing because it touches on things that are, you uh, you know, familiar to me, the way I'm leading my life every day. There's, there's, you know, ideas, tactics, things that people could take with them and really apply in day to day life. And, you know, the last chapter of the book uh, is actually very personal and it gets into why I wrote the book. And I had originally stopped the book at 13 chapters, but um, a former colleague who you know, pre-read the book said, you, you have to have an ending to this. Like this is, it just feels abrupt. And, you know, adding a little bit more of you personally in the book would be uh, relevant to the topics that you've covered. And so uh, I did add that chapter, which I think will make a lot of sense to people along with the, the preface of the book. So your next book is called Hostility of Change. So that's kind of an in-your-face kind of title. Um, so what was the significance of that? Uh, you know, Barbara, the, the hostility of change, I'd started to write before I came to HMS Host. I was in, I felt like I was in a good frame of, of, of writing after I finished editing the first book that immediately rolled into the second idea um, for the book, The Hostility of Change. And Really, the headline on the book is that change is not a process, change is an emotion. And when I think about it from a business perspective, um, so often, you know, companies implement processes, new procedures, tools, they roll them out to their field organization. And then when they do the postmortem three months, six months later, it's always this question of, well, why didn't it stick? You know, things didn't actually happen the way they thought. And it's because there's so much focus on process versus the emotion of change. And the emotion of change is so powerful that you can introduce change to someone that's good for them and they still reject it <laughs> because our natural reaction is to not want to change what's already, quote unquote, working, which may not be working, by the way. But I think on the business side, 
there's so many opportunities and I explore that in the book. On the personal side, change is really difficult. I think about someone who, um, you know, wants to lose weight and decides to sign up at a gym, hire a personal trainer. And, you know, even in that example, and you're paying for this, by the way, three or four months later, you may not have the results you, you want. And because change is such a powerful emotion, uh, it's easy to blame the trainer. <laughs> it's easy to blame someone else instead of the personal accountability for change. And that is, I think, an important journey as well. So I really talk about both sides of it, personal and professional, but I really get into how difficult change really is. It's not just about the symbiotic process of rolling these things out and everyone agrees and everyone's aligned. It's very difficult to get to that. And two specific things in the book, I talk about all the different things, types of people to look for that could be uh, disrupting the change process in your personal or professional life. Uh, and then also talk about resistance. Because there's going to be resistance. The question is how much and how do you deal with that? So that's uh, towards the end of the book. But it was an important um, topic for me to take on. Um, someone recently asked me, did I write this book because of the pandemic? And my answer was no. I'd started writing the, the book long before the pandemic. And then another question was, did I write it because of what I've gone through this last year at HMS Host? And the, my response is the same. I had already started writing before I started working here. And the point of it all is that change is always happening. There's going to be something around the corner that we all have to contend with. So why does utter dissatisfaction lead to change? Yeah, you know, it, I wrote that chapter because the... Exterior influences we have in our life can sometimes create change, but frankly, more often than not, they don't. It takes the internal, uh, almost visceral disgust to say, you know what, this is that moment I'm going to change. Whether it's someone who says, I'm going to stop smoking. And real change is that it's not, I went from three packs to two to one. It's that I'm smoking three packs today and tomorrow I never smoke a cigarette again. Like that's real change. And that's that's what we're I think we're all kind of striving for or whether it's losing weight or our eating habits or all those things that we kind of cycle ourselves through. You know, I read this article that um, if you look at the statistics around the, the gyms and fitness centers in the United States, uh, of course, they get the biggest spike in January of people signing up. But by the first week of February, 75 percent have fallen out. Uh, it's just that's how difficult change is and, and to sustain it. But it can't be artificial. It has to be something that just deep down inside you are so frustrated and disgusted that you, and dissatisfied that it, it forces real change. What is a burning platform? Mm. Now, burning platform is that you, you have to have something that's so pressing at the moment that you don't have a choice but to make a different decision. And, you know, it's based on a book that was written, uh, you know, 20 some odd years ago. And this discussion, this example of a gentleman standing on the platform of a literally of a burning oil rig. And he's got two choices to stay on the rig that's on fire that will eventually engulf him in flames or jump into the icy you know, frigid water below 
which could kill him from the leap. But he had no choice but to leap. Um, and he did survive. And he told a story about this is that, you know, burning platform is you cannot stay where you are. You must make a decision to do something different. Now, you know, the best leaders can create a burning platform, perhaps sometimes even when there isn't one as a way to inspire leaders. But uh, I do think that we're finding ourselves um, in those situations more often in business, particularly as fast as things are moving, but sometimes in our personal lives as well. And if we don't uh, feel compelled to make a different decision, most often we don't. And so a, a burning platform, while it sounds dire, and it is, it can also be a catalyst for change. So what are some characteristics you feel make a good leader? Yeah, I mean, the first thing I would say, Barbara, is that a leader's number one responsibility is to inspire people. It really is. If, if you go around that and make it a second or third or, frankly, not at all a priority, uh, you get compliance, but you don't ever get commitment. And the other thing I would say that ties into this inspiration is that um, you could create an incredible vision if you're in a business setting, but people have to buy into the leader before they buy into the vision. So you've got to inspire people. Then you create a vision that that they can follow. Then I think a leader creates actions that that will drive results, which is the fourth part. And the ultimate uh, leader will be able to do all four of those things. Now, can you get all four all the time? Probably not. That's the challenge of leadership. But I think if you if you kind of remember that journey of inspiring people, creating the vision, creating the right actions that drive results, um, you more often than not will stand out as, as a top leader. Um, the other thing I would say about leadership is that it's, you know, sometimes people think it's somewhat esoteric, but it's not. You know, real leadership shows up. It's tangible. It's something people can see and feel. And uh, I, I think, you know, this past year is a great example of when, you know, we're going through the pandemic, you know, leaders have to be clear. It's clear about what the objectives are, what we're trying to accomplish, why we do it, what's in it for you, what's in it for others, um, check and adjust. And, you know, as, as, a, as a country, we had lots of challenges with that. So you talked about, um, you know, change being emotional, um, so in what ways do empathy and compassion play roles in implementing change? Yeah, I think empathy and compassion are really important and particularly compassion, because it's one thing to empathize with someone's situation. And I talk about this in the book. Compassion is the next step. It's the actually taking action, you know, to relieve someone's pain or suffering or you know, difficulty with the situation. And that's important in the change process because a leader has to look at everyone on the team and diagnose separately, where are they in the change process and how do you help get them through? And some will be inspired by the change because they do believe it's good for them or it's something different or uh, it gets them out of the, you know, different in terms of gets them out of the monotony of the work they're doing. But there's going to be a segment that doesn't see any of those benefits. They don't see a financial benefit. It's just change is really hard. And that's where I think being compassionate 
uh, is important as a leader. Um, I can remember years ago um, having a, a leader that worked for me who was just wonderful in everything that they did, but they had such a routine, such a pattern that when it was disrupted, you know, it was it was very obvious. It was very visible. And I think taking the time uh, to invest with that person differently than others, you know, it made a difference. And, um, you know, someone asked me recently, you know, do all leaders have to be compassionate? And what if they're not compassionate just as their normal kind of day to day? You know, it, this isn't about creating anything artificial. It's just compassion is sometimes just simply asking questions. We all have the capability to do that. So what advice would you give to someone who, you know, sees your achievements and is impressed and wants to do something similar? Uh, you know, I, I just I do think that um, we've all had our own difficult journeys. Um, and I, I do think that that's part of leadership is being vulnerable and sharing those. I, I've had plenty of setbacks along the way and things that I would do differently. And yet, you know, I, I think every one of those has made me a bit stronger. But I encourage people to be courageous, you know, say the thing that you want to say, do the thing that you want to do. Um, more often than not, the, the failure and the result of the failure isn't that cataclysmic. It really isn't that bad. I think we find in most parts of our life. And, you know, writing a book was, um, you know, it was, it was a little unnerving at first. Uh, could I even get through writing it? I ended up spending more time editing the first book than I did writing. It was a very arduous task. And uh, it, it didn't really feel complete uh, until I had the book, the first book that was mailed to my house, and I'm looking at it. And that moment was enough to drive me to do it again. So what do you love about what you do? Um, you know, it sounds cliche for a lot of people, but it's people. It really is about people. And um, for the job that I have, you know, there's there's kind of three dimensions to it. There's the work I do here in the headquarters. Um, there's the work in relationships with, uh, you know, local authorities, the people running their airports, the uh, local politicians, all of those entities. But the third piece is our people that are out doing the work in the restaurants. And uh, just in the last few weeks, the stories that I've heard and been able to bear witness to are just amazing. And I think the more any of us expand our world, the more we see of the world and we start to understand it a little bit better. And so for me, it's it's being able to have these collections of experiences and stories. And I can remember sitting with a group of district managers many years ago, uh, early time at Starbucks. I was a regional vice president and I was moving to a new role as a senior vice president. And I met with this group because they were part of my early onboarding. So I trusted them or seven district managers. And I asked them the question, you know, now that I'm moving to this next level, what should I do differently? And their their response was share more stories. You know, the more you see, you'll have more to share and, and share them more broadly. And so I've really tried to do that. Perfect. Thank you so much. This is great. 